Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 1.1. Luke 1.1. You can follow along on the Version app as well. And while you're getting to Luke 1.1, uh, we are uh, making our way to the Christmas season. Uh, it's hard to believe we're only a few weeks away from Christmas, and if you're one of those uh, people who say you shouldn't listen to Christmas music or watch Christmas movies until after Thanksgiving, you can join those of us who have started weeks ago. Um, it is officially Black Friday. We had Thanksgiving, Black Friday's over, so now you can start listening to Christmas music and watching Christmas movies if you'd like. Um, but no, we are making our way towards Christmas, but we are also this morning starting in the book of Luke, and I would encourage you to uh, make yourself at home in Luke. We're going to be in Luke for the foreseeable future, and uh, I would encourage you uh, to read through. Uh, as we go through Luke, read through Luke as you're doing your uh, if you're doing reading plans or as you're reading scripture throughout the day. I would encourage you to read along in Luke and. Uh, yeah, it's a, a lot of important things. And so in regards to the, the beginning of Luke and what do we need to know about Luke? Well, Luke is going to give us what we need to know right off the beginning. So we're just going to jump right in to Luke 1 and we're going to start in verse 1. And it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been or accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so we'll start right off the beginning. Who is this guy that the book is named after, the guy who wrote this gospel? The writer is Luke, and this is Luke the physician, as tradition has uh, since, or has passed on that this was Luke the physician. He is named three times in the New Testament. In Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Uh, Philemon 1, 23 and 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so as we have read here, Luke was a physician. He was also a companion of Paul. We see him travel with Paul in the book of Acts and record some of what happens on their missionary journeys. Uh, between this book and his other work of art, the, the book of Acts, he makes up 27% of the New Testament. Matter of fact, if you look at the writings of Luke, he has more scripture written in the New Testament than anybody else, unless you believe that Paul was the author of Hebrews. If you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, then it would be Paul. But without that, Luke has wrote the most scripture in the New Testament. Something else to know about Luke is that Luke was a Gentile. Tradition holds that he was a Gentile, and he is the only Gentile author to write in the New Testament. 
And the verse that usually is accompanied with this is Colossians 4.11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And to think of Luke being a Gentile, it makes a lot of sense as you read through the gospel of Luke and you see the people he interacted with and the message of the book of Luke. A matter of fact, Warren Wearsby describes the gospel of Luke like this, saying, in this gospel, you meet individuals as well as crowds, women and children, as well as men, poor people, as well as rich people and sinners along with saints. It is a book with a message for everybody because Luke's emphasis is on the university of Jesus Christ and his salvation. And that's proven when you look at verses like 19, Luke 19.10, which is an example of one of the key messages of his gospel. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, all the lost. Didn't just come to save the Jews, but all people, all people. And so getting into these first four verses... Luke's the only gospel to start with the method and purpose for the book at the beginning. He gives us this little introduction, and in this introduction, he gives us the method to how he's going to write and why he is writing this. And what's interesting about these first four verses is that these in the Greek are one long continuous sentence, all one long continuous sentence. As a matter of fact, many believe it to be, if not one of, or if not the greatest, one of the greatest Greek sentences in all of the New Testament. Luke was very skilled in Greek. He knew the Greek language. He could speak the Greek language. Um, outside of the book of Hebrew, it's probably the, the book of Luke is the best use of Greek writing. And he says here, that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Others have written about Jesus. This could mean a couple of things. Some have written about Jesus and included facts that weren't true. There were people who wrote about Jesus and put in things that weren't true, and so he's going to write these or this narrative. He's going to write about this to uh, make sure people know the facts. It's also possible that he says this because he's going to write because some of the other Gospels left out some things that he felt were important details, uh, things that aren't including in some of the other Gospels. Um, and we see here that he does his research. He looks at other accounts. He takes eyewitness accounts. He listens to previous accounts to write his account here. He has been paying attention. Uh, you know, so just as those from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past. Luke, being a physician, he was going to research, he was going to study, he was going to see what others had said. He does his research. Then we see, he says, that he is making, really, an orderly account. This gospel is also the only gospel writer, he's the only gospel writer to mention a chronological order. He's writing everything in order of chronology, an ordered account. And it says that he's writing this to most excellent Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Nobody knows who Theophilus is exactly. The name Theophilus means lover or friend of God. Therefore, some people say that when he refers to Theophilus, he's referring to a group of people, to all people who love God, to all people who are lovers and friends of God. That's who Theophilus is. 
but he uses the term most excellent Theophilus. Excellent was a title that was common for a governor or somebody who was in a position of authority. And so it could be that this was a man who was some kind of authority. He was a governor. He was somebody in a position of authority who uh, Luke was trying to share the gospel with. And so he's writing this account to share the gospel with this person in authority. It could be somebody who had heard the gospel and Luke is just trying to strengthen his faith. Here's the basics. Here's the things that you need to know about Jesus. And so he's trying to strengthen this man's faith. Others believe that this was possibly the publisher of the letter. Maybe he needed extra funds and resources to get this letter out and for his travels and his research and his uh, listening to others. Maybe he needed some help. And so the publisher would uh, give him the resources he needed to produce this letter. And it's always possible that a thanksgiving would be giving at the beginning to uh, for footing the bill. Thank you here because you're publishing this. Here is why I'm writing this. The likelihood seems that it is more somebody that he is writing to to strengthen his faith or to encourage him to hear the story of Jesus because of what is said in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. It sounds like he had heard before the story of Jesus, and now Luke is writing to him to say, here are the things that you need to know. Here are the details that are important to the story. Here are the things that you need to know so that you can know for certain. So that if others come up that are not true, the things that sound like they are false, you will know for certainty what is true. And so that's the introduction. And that is the purpose and the reason for this gospel. And so now we're going to move into verse 5. But before we get into verse 5, we need to think about what comes after these first Four verses. You see, at the very beginning of Scripture, God created everything, right? And He created man and woman, and He gave them this garden, and He told them, You can eat from any of these trees, but you can't eat from this one tree. And what do they do? They eat from the tree they're not supposed to, and sin enters into the world. But from that time on, God had a plan. God had been orchestrating and putting this plan into existence. And throughout all of history, through all of the things that you read in the Old Testament, God is moving, and God is orchestrating, and God is conducting and carrying out his plan. But then we come to a point, and there's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. There is 400 years of silence between what we read in the beginning of Luke, in the end of Malachi. There's 400 years of silence. And a lot of things happen in those 400 years, a lot of important things. But now we will see this morning the silence is about to be broken. Things are starting to come into fruition. A matter of fact, one of the last things it said in the book of Malachi, in Malachi 4 2, is, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And later on in Luke chapter 1 and verses 78 and 79, Zechariah will say this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The light was about to come into a world of darkness. Light was coming, and now we see that it is coming into the darkness. This light is coming. Things are coming into fruition. And so we move into verse 5, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. 
It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so right here we see at the beginning of this story, we are entering into the time when Herod, king of Judah, was in his reign. This was Herod, or known as Herod, king of the Jews. And this Herod is the Herod that we often refer, or heard referred to before as Herod the Great. And he ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. And Herod the Great was not really a good man. He was a shrewd politician. He was a tyrant. It is said that he had nine to ten wives he had executed for no reason at all. He was made king of the Jews, even though he was an Edomite. And the reason he was made king of the Jews is because the Jews couldn't seem to settle their own disputes. And so this king is not a very good person, and yet he is at the reign at this time. And while he's reigning, we meet this elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zacharias was uh, named after the phrase Jehovah has remembered. That's what his name means. And Elizabeth is God is my oath. And these were some very good people. They were righteous people. Zacharias is a man of double honor because he is both a priest and he is married to a woman who is a descendant of a priest. She is of the line of Aaron. And I love how Luke describes them here. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were doing everything right. Before God, they were righteous people. They were following God's commands, his decrees, everything they were supposed to do. But they had just one issue in their life. You see, they were without child. She was barren and in Scripture, it's seen that children were a blessing, and therefore the other end of that was often said to be a curse. If you were barren, it was a curse. When a woman's barrenness was reversed, it was a sign of God's blessing and vice versa. And what would make this a curse for a woman? Well, they would have no one to support and take care of them if their husband were to pass. And another reason is it would bring scorn from the other women. They would look at somebody who was barren and they would bring scorn upon them. And we see it appears that they have no hope to reverse this curse because they were advanced in years. And it doesn't tell us the exact age of these two, but it was said in Judaism that a Jew would not be considered old until they hit the age of 60. And so it could have been anywhere from 60 to 80 or 90, somewhere in that range. But then we see that Zechariah is serving as priest. Some time comes and he's serving as priest. And it says that he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. What does this mean that his division was on duty? 
Well, the priest had divisions at this time. The divisions were divided into 24 division, and in each division there was around 900 priests for a grand total of around 21,600 priests. That is a lot of priests, and that is a lot of people to be doing the work at the temple. And so they split them up into divisions, and First Chronicles chapter 24 actually tells us about those divisions if you want to read up on that, First Chronicles 24. And so they would have these divisions, and each division would serve twice in a year. And so they would serve, they're serving here, and he maybe had served previous, or he was still yet to serve his other, um, their division's other term. But we see here that now was time for him to do his job in the temple. And it said, according to the custom to the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Lots would be cast for three different things that needed to be done. The first job would be rekindling the fire on the altar and serving with the morning sacrifice. The second job that a lot would be cast for was the officiating priest of the day. And the third job would be trimming the golden candlestick and preparing incense within the holy place. Those were the three different tasks that were needed, and he had been chosen to go in and burn the incense. And this is a really important deal. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. But this idea of burning incense, it symbolized the ascending prayers of the saints. As they would burn incense, it would symbolize the prayers going up from the saints. And we see something similar in Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In Revelation 5.8, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so he would go in and it was his job to go in with the incense. And this was prepared both morning and evening, so it would continually burn before the Lord. We see this in Exodus 37 and 8. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And here's why this is such a big deal. It's such a, you know, this is no coincidence that God is orchestrating the way things the way he is. This job that uh, Zacharias has, this job that he has been given, you could only do it once in your lifetime. This would be the only time he would ever be able to do this task that he had gotten. There were so many priests, there would, no one would ever get to do this job more than once. And so God is orchestrating things here. And so what would take place here when he would go in and burn the incense? What would happen? Well, uh, former professor of mine, uh, Mark Moore, describes it this way in his commentary on the life of Christ. He says, Zechariah would choose two friends or relatives to help him in the sacred duty of burning the incense. One would clean the altar from the previous evening's offering, and while worshiping, he would move backwards out of the holy place. The second would then come forward and spread live coals from the altar of sacrifice to the outer edges of the altar of incense. He also worshiped and exits the holy place backwards, leaving Zechariah alone to perform his sacred duty. The inner sanctuary was dimly lit by the seven-branched candlestick on the south. To the north was the table of shewbread, 
To the west, nearest the Holy of Holies, was the altar of incense. At just the right time, he would spread the incense on the altar. The priest and people outside, seeing the offering rise to God, would bow in reverent worship and prayer. And many people from all over the city came to the temple at this hour for prayer. Most priests completed their duties rather quickly, fearing the wrath of God if they tarried. So that's just a description of what he would do. Now, before we go to verse 11, I want to go back real quick to verse 6. And where it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I think this is a really important thing that Luke writes here. Because if you think about it, one, they're righteous before God, doing all of his commandments and following all of his decrees, his statutes, in a time when the world was a dark place. But also, I think it's important because they were righteous and doing all the things they were supposed to in a time when there were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who were all about being hypocrites. They were, I mean, they did everything they did out of show. They wanted to be holy in the sight of people. And so everything they did and the way they prayed and the way they read, everything they did was out in the open so people could see them and they would let their holiness shine before everybody. But yet they were whitewashed tombs. They weren't really righteous. They weren't really holy. Everything they did was for show. And I just love how he describes Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous, they were blameless in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. And so the question that I would ask you is if somebody came and was writing an account of the things that are happening here and other places, what would they say about us? Because I think the truth is there's a lot of people, a lot of people who wear the name Christian and yet their life does not really show it. Life doesn't really show it. I mean, we wear the name Christian, we walk about as if we are holy, and yet our life does not show it. And how do we know it doesn't show it? Because we don't do the things that God asks of us. We don't live the way that God asks us to live. We do all these things, and yet we do them all for the wrong reasons. There's a lot of people in our world today who wear the name Christian who really, if you think about it, are just whitewashed tombs. You see, we're called to be different. It should be noticeable. It should be noticeable. We were talking about this Monday night at Men's Bible Study. It, we were talking about being passionate and, and you know, how do, we, how do we start a spark? How do we light a fire? How do, how do we get people to want to see what, what Jesus can do for them? How do we get people to see what it is that Jesus has done for them in their lives? How can we really express that message? How can we get it out in the open? And one of the things we kept coming back to is it should be visible in our lives. It should be visible in our lives, and it shouldn't be for just show. It should be something that consumes us. When people see us, when people hear us, when people know, or people should know what we believe and whom we believe. Because they should see a person, they should see somebody who follows what God tells them. We follow the words in this book. We follow the words in Scripture. We live it out. We do what it tells us to do, not for show, not for notoriety, but because we love Him. That is what, that's what we're called to. First Peter, 
chapter 1, 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Deuteronomy 11, 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules and his commandments always. Jesus says it simply in John fourteen fifteen: if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are we doing what God calls us to do? Are we living out his commandments? Are we living by his decrees? Are we living a righteous life? Not because we want attention, but because of what God has done for us, because of who he is, because we love him, because we want to do those things. What would people write about us? We move in to verse 11. And it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, or to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And now Zechariah is standing there, and an angel appears. Some believe that maybe the angel was standing here the whole time and Zechariah and all of his busy work and what he was doing didn't notice. And then when he finally did notice, uh, fear falls upon him. Some say it just, he just appeared. Either way, the same response happens when we see angels appear. Fear falls upon him. But the angel tells him what the angel always tells people. Do not be afraid. Matter of fact, the literal words for this phrase, do not be afraid, means stop being afraid. The angel says, stop being afraid. Easier said than done if somebody just appeared. I have people who just walk up on me sometimes. Ah, Imagine an angel. And an angel tells them, don't be afraid. You see, fear and awe before God is a common thing in the book of Luke. But the angel tells them, their prayer has been heard. Their prayers have been heard. Some debate what this means. Was it just the fact that they had been praying for a son? And that's what he's telling them, your prayer, a son or a daughter, your prayers have been heard, you're going to have a child? Or was it something more than that? Was he praying for the Messiah to come? I mean, think about it. He had seen a civil war from 67 to 63 BC, followed by a Roman conquest. He witnessed Herod being made king. You see, I think the answer is he prayed for both. I think he prayed for a child, and I think he prayed for the coming Messiah. And what I think is great is that both are coming. And this angel tells him, you are going to have a son. And the name of the son would be John. We'll come back to that here in a minute because that name's important. And he tells us here all the blessings that this child is going to be. He was going to be precious to his parents. He would bring joy and gladness. And many were going to rejoice at his birth. He would be great in the sight of the Lord. He would partake and uh, we see here it says that he must not drink wine or strong drink. He would take part in a Nazarite vow. A vow is 
a decision, action, and desire of part of the people whose desire it is to yield themselves to God completely. Numbers chapter 6, 1 through 21, describes the Nazarite vow in detail. We see people who had taken this oath, or uh, parents who did this oath on behalf of their kids. Uh, You see, that was Samson in Judges chapter 13, 4 and 5. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel in 1 Samuel 1, 11 is another example. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. We see that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. From the time of his birth, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that he would come in the power of Elijah. Malachi predicts this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And you see, he would be a prophet who would present Jesus to the people, and God would use him to turn people to himself. He would come again in the power of Elijah. Isaiah 43 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Malachi 3, 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This child is going to be important. He's going to be the forerunner before the Messiah. All these things describe just how important this child was going to be and who he, why he was going to be so important. Now, It said that they were to give him the name John. If you didn't know this, the name John means Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. And he truly is, isn't he? The Lord is gracious. He was gracious in giving Zechariah and Elizabeth the gift of their son. He was gracious in giving the people an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. He was gracious in the plan that he had been putting together. He was gracious in what he would do by sending his son. He truly is a gracious God. I think sometimes we forget just how gracious our God is. He is truly a gracious God. In Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. You want to talk about how gracious he is. He's gracious in the fact that he would send his son to come and live and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is how gracious our God is. And just as John was, the Lord is gracious and what it meant for his parents, what it would mean for the people, God is gracious to us today. We forget sometimes just how gracious he is. Then we move into verse 18. He says this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? 
for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at this delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when this time of service was ended, he went home, or he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, I think Zechariah responds here just how many of us would in this situation. How am I going to know that this is the, the, the case? I'm an old man. I'm an old man. Uh, my wife is well advanced in years. Um, I, I don't know why I always kind of chuckle at that phrasing. Uh, I'm an old man and she's well advanced in years. Um, but we see here, he responds the way I think many of us would respond. How am I going to know this? How am I going to know this? It's as if he's asking for a sign. And we see here that the angel is Gabriel. Gabriel, and one of two angels mentioned by name in Scripture, one is here, Gabriel, the other one is Michael. Gabriel is the messenger angel, while Michael is the archangel, which means chief angel. You often see Michael in battle, kind of known as the warrior angel. And the sign he gives him is also the punishment that he gives him. You want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign, and this is also punishment for you. Until that time comes, you're going to be silent. You're going to be able to hear. You're going to be unable to speak until everything happens because you did not believe. You didn't believe that what I told you was enough. You, you say, how is this going to happen? You see, Jesus kind of got on to people for asking for signs when they have the evidence to believe. Matthew 12, 38 and 39 then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It says something similar in Luke eleven twenty nine. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he comes out of the temple now. People are wondering, What in the world took you so long coming out? And the way he comes out, he cannot speak, he cannot hear. People realize that something happened. Maybe it was a vision, maybe a dream, something happened in there. And we see that he stays until his time of service is up, and then he goes home. And Elizabeth is thrilled with what God has done for her. She ends up becoming pregnant, and she's thrilled. This curse has been reversed. Here's what I'm... Here's the thing that stands out to me about these verses. How shall I know this for I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years? He answers the exact same way many of us would. He does. When things seem impossible, we often don't go straight to belief. We often go to how in the world is this possible? I think the thing is a lot of times we tend to put God in a box. We live our lives so often believing that God can't do what he says he's going to do. We lack faith. We lack belief. And 
when the world starts to tell us it just doesn't seem possible, we lose our hope. I think of the Israelites who one bad report made them lose, well, their view of a bad report made them lose hope and lose faith and lose belief and what happened to them, they miss out on the promised land. So often we live our lives the same way, not really believing that God can do everything he says he's going to do. We pray, but a lot of times our prayers seem to go up with a little bit of unbelief in them, not really thinking that God is going to answer our prayers. I think sometimes we get in the habit of living our lives, looking for only the big displays of miracles, the things that are huge and immaculate, the things that we can see, the, the cross or the, the parting of the seas, the, the big things like that, the walking on water, the bringing people out of the grave. We look for those type of things, and if we don't see them, then we believe that God can't actually do everything that he says he's going to do. We live our lives in unbelief more than we care to admit. Jeremiah thirty two seventeen, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, I think that if we are really in tune with God, if we are really in sync with God, one, the desires of our heart is his are the things that he desires. We pray for his will in all situations. And if we pray for his will to be done and yet we live as though he's not actually going to do it, we have a problem. And then here's the thing we need to remember. God's will is not always our will. God's will is not always our will. Sometimes the thing that I want for myself, the will for myself is not the will that God has for me. And I need to pray and say, God, not my will, your will. Sometimes we get bogged down by an issue of timing, right? Like we think that God should answer our prayers in exactly the timetable that we think he should answer our prayers. And if God doesn't answer our prayers exactly when we need them answered, then that means he's not doing what he says he's going to do, or he's not working, or he's a liar, or he's not going to fulfill his promise, he's not going to do this or that. God's timing is not my timing. It's not. I'm glad because sometimes I'm selfish. No, you see, God has his plan. God has his desired will for us. God knows all of these things and God fulfills his promise. Are we going to live our lives believing that he won't? Are we going to live our lives with such little faith to believe that God can do what he says he's going to do? You see, he told Zechariah, this is going to happen. The angel tells him this is going to happen. He says, how is it even possible? I'm too old for this. He lacked faith. He lacked belief in that moment. And are we doing the same thing in our lives? I hope not because God is big enough to do everything he says he's going to do. God is big enough to fulfill every promise that he makes. God is going to do exactly what he says he is going to do. And if you need an example of this, look at where we're leading to this morning. God is working out. God is orchestrating this plan. He is in the process of sending his son. This child that we have read about this morning is the the foregoer. He is coming before the Messiah. Things are in motion. All the way back when man fell, he had been working out this plan to bring his son. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, 
He's kept that promise. And we know it. And we know it because we have the advantage of looking at the whole of the written word. We can read the Gospels. We can read through the New Testament. We know what happens. Jesus comes. He lives. He dies on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. His blood poured out for us. And he goes to the grave. But guess what? He raises three days later. Just as it had been said he would. He wins. He wins. Read Revelation. He wins. Everything he said he would do, he has done. And we can have confidence knowing that when he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. And so the question I have for you this morning is this. Are you living for him? Are you living for him? Are you, are you, have you followed him? Are you following him? Are you giving your life to him? Are you trying to be righteous before him not before man before him are you doing the things that he has asked you to do are you following his commandments his decrees are you living for him are you so on fire for him that people can tell whom it is you serve whom it is you love whom it is you believe in what is getting in your way of being righteous before God doing what he says are you living a life saying you believe but you're not trusting him Are you living a life saying you believe, but you're not living for him? Are you saying that you believe, but you're not serving him? Maybe you're here this morning and you've not been following him. and That's what you want to do. If that's the case, you can come and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about it. Maybe you're here this morning, but you've just been living a life where you haven't been trusting. You haven't been obeying. You haven't been doing what he asked good news is that the Lord is gracious. He is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. And we can go before him. We can lay those things down at his feet and we can follow him fully. We can trust in him fully. We can obey him fully. We can live for him fully. And so if you're here this morning and you want to follow him, you can come and talk with me. If you just need to spend time in prayer, I would hope that you would do so. Let us live for him and let us remember that he is gracious. Let's stand and sing together.